the teachings of the apostles, or the catechism of the early church. Join Pastor Hook in today's teaching of the Didache. We are in the Didache, and we are in the Didache chapter 14. And uh, if you remember, chapters 11 through 13 talked about um, teachers and prophets and apostles and how they should be treated and, uh, and how they should operate in the early church. Now we're going to move to a different section, and this is called What Happens on Sunday? Because uh, if you'll remember, in the Jewish faith, the, the day that the Jewish people would gather together would be on the evening of Friday night and all day Saturday uh, until the evening. And, uh, but a lot of people still worked seven days a week. And so, uh, you know, the, there is a day of rest in the Jewish faith. And if the community would allow a day of rest, then they would definitely rest. So in Israel, obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a culture centered around Yahweh. And so they would definitely have a day of rest. But as you got into the Roman and the Greek cultures, there really wasn't a day off. It would, they were working seven days a week. That's just what they did. Um, now, once Constantine uh, made Christianity the official religion of the empire, then he did set aside Sundays as being a day of rest. Uh, and, that, and that's when that started. So, so the, Jewish, the Jewish faith kind of had Friday night into Saturday night uh, as a day of rest, which is effectively sun, uh, Saturday. And then uh, Constantine had Sunday. So our modern day seven-day work week with two days off, Saturday and Sunday, basically comes from that, the fact that we are a Judeo-Christian culture. So we get uh, Judeo-Christian holidays off, Saturday and Sunday. And if you'll remember, the day of uh, rest was, was Saturday because that was the day that God took off. So he created for six days and he rested on the seventh day. So that was, that was his day of rest. Uh, and that's the Jewish culture would take off the day of rest, which was, which was, sat, which was Saturday, um, because that was the day that God rested. But something happened in the early church. Uh, the day uh, to take off or the day to commemorate the church and do churchly stuff actually changed. And uh, it changed very, very early. Uh, and that's kind of what we see in the Didache. So let's just go ahead and get into Didache chapter 14. Uh, and we'll begin on verse 1. On the Lord's day of the Lord, come together, break bread, and hold Eucharist, after confessing your transgressions that your offering may be pure. But let none who has a quarrel with his fellow join in your meeting until they be reconciled that your sacrifice may not be de defiled. Well, I'm just going to stop there. So, now we see that the early church came together on a day called the Lord's Day. And the Lord's Day is the day that Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, uh, on, this, on the first day of the week. If you remember, the Jews rested on the seventh day of the week. This Lord's Day was the first day of the week. And so this was the day. And um, there was one early Christian author that said, as as God spoke uh, on day of day one of creation uh, and the heavens and the earth came together, uh, so spoke God uh, to the grave and Jesus came bursting forth on the first day. Uh, and so that's the day 
that the that Christians gathered. So now you have to remember in Acts 2, 42 to 45, they almost came together every day of the week. Uh, they gathered together daily for the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, prayer, and then they pooled their resources to give to people who had a need. So, And that wasn't necessarily limited to one day of the week. That was almost like a community doing this every day that they can. They lived in fellowship together. Now, the interesting thing to, to, about this whole thing is that, um, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of interesting things. First of all, uh, this coming together on the Lord's Day, uh, which would have been Sunday, if you remember in the in the Greek and Roman world, they didn't have they didn't have days off. They worked seven days a week. So if they wanted to come together, they had to either meet before work or after work. Um, and we, of course, we do this too, right? If we're at church, most people work, you know, typical shift, what you know, eight to five or something like that, seven to four. And um, so if we do stuff as a church and we want to bring people together, we typically have to do it early, early in the morning or late in the afternoon, uh, maybe even after dinner. My, uh, when I lived in Phoenix, there was a Bible study taught by a guy named Larry Wright, which was a uh, early, early morning. I think it was a six o'clock in the morning Bible study. Uh, and you'd have business professionals, you know, before they got to work, uh, they would meet together at someone's home and they have a Bible study uh, and have some fellowship time and then they would go off to work. And that was one day a week. And that was actually a pretty cool thing. Um, and then you, and then of course you have lots of night meetings, you know, after work and after supper, people coming together and doing night meetings. That's, that's kind of a cool thing too. Because if everybody works, typical work week, then, um, then getting together uh, is, is limited to after work. Well, the same thing happened in the early church. Uh, when they came together on the Lord's Day, they would come together to break bread in the Eucharist. Well, they would do this uh, either before or after work. Um, they wouldn't do it like during the day because uh, at least outside of the Jewish uh, empire or the Jewish uh, communities, uh, they wouldn't be able to do that. So, but the day is important. The day would be the Lord's Day. Uh, and something special is happening on the Lord's Day. Uh, this is a break from what they would normally do, coming together and shell, you know, doing fellowship together. This day, they would come together uh, on the day of the Lord to break bread and hold the Eucharist after confessing their transgressions. So at least early, early on, on the Lord's Day, it seems like they would come together mostly to celebrate uh, the Eucharist. And uh, we've already talked a little bit uh, in an earlier chapter about how the Eucharist uh, in the early, early, early church uh, looked different from what we have today. In the early church, uh, and there's lots of evidence of this uh, in not only the Didache, but in the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, that what they would come together to do was what was called an agape meal. And an agape meal was mostly like a potluck. So uh, this was most likely then at the end of the day on Sunday. So after work, they would all gather together. They would have a potluck. And then in the midst of the potluck, they would celebrate uh, the Eucharist or this Thanksgiving meal. They would remember Jesus. And there's, uh, there's uh, uh, you know, some prayers to say before the Eucharist. There's prayers to say after the meal. Uh, all that stuff is here is recorded in the Didache. 
and I, as I've mentioned before, I really, really, really like this idea of coming together and um, celebrating this agape meal and in the middle of the agape meal, uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper. But definitely by around two or 300 AD, the whole concept of the agape meal kind of um, stopped. And it may have been because of the abuses that Paul writes about uh, in 1 Corinthians, where you'd have people coming together for an agape meal. Uh, and instead of it being a time of fellowship, uh, it was a time of, um, hey, can I, get a, can I get a free meal? Uh, I need a free meal. Uh, it, it just the whole... The whole idea, you have to remember that a meal back in the early church, you know, in the early church, 100 AD, uh, just, just finding food to sustain your living was not an easy thing. You couldn't go to Burger King and get a burger, right? Uh, right now, we have so much food and so much ability to, to have, you know, so nobody's dying of starvation here in the United States that we, we don't even have a concept and understanding of this. But in the early church, there definitely were people that were on the brink of, a brink of starvation and death because of, you know, the lack of food. And so if a church was offering a free meal, they might show up just to get a free meal, which was not a problem because, you know, part of the early church's call was to love everyone around you. And so what greater way to love people than to come in create a meal and the people who are really, really starving would have a meal. Well, the problem was the people that weren't really starving and they just, um, they were abusing the system. And that's kind of what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians, uh, is that there, it's just not an equitable di distribution of this agape meal. And so Paul wrote against it. And, and by about 1 or 200 AD, the whole idea of the agape meal kind of went away uh, with the Eucharist in the middle of the agape meal. Although there are still some denominations that practice an agape meal. Uh, and if you've ever been part of, uh, you know, some specialized ministries, they also have an agape meal. So uh, agape meal still kind of exists a little bit, but it, uh, it's not, you, it's not uh, widespread uh, and it's not a Sunday afternoon thing. But, and I've mentioned this before also, is that when we as a church, Christ Lutheran Vale, started coming together uh, in its early, early history, we met on Sunday evening and we had a potluck, and we had uh, a devotion, and we had some singing. I mean, it really was, an agape meal is a very, very cool thing. And if you've ever been part of a, uh, a small group, uh, oftentimes there's food associated with that. Well, that's kind of like an agape meal too. So there's nothing better than having a group of people come together around food uh, and drink. It's just, it's just something that is just, that's where uh, truly I think... Um, uh, I believe it is a foretaste of the feast to come. I think when the church comes together uh, in a potluck and gathers together on food and drink and conversation and just enjoying each other's company, that truly is what heaven's going to look like. It's going to be like this eternal uh, banquet, if you will. Uh, and we know that we have room at the banquet table because we've been redeemed by Jesus. And, uh, and so that's a good thing. So the day was on uh, Sunday. And it was typically an agape meal, which would be in the afternoon. Uh, that's kind of how I see this. Now, it does say that you should confess your transgressions so that your offering may be pure. So in the middle of the agape meal or before the agape meal or before the Eucharist, there was some sense of confessing your transgressions. Uh, and, and the reason they well, let's go back to this. Um, this is, uh, I'll start in verse 2 again. 
But let none who has a quarrel with his fellow join in your meeting until they be reconciled, that your sacrifice be not defiled. For this is that which was spoken by the Lord. In every place and time, offer me a pure sacrifice. For I am a great king, saith the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the heathen. So uh, this actually is a reference back to Malachi, Malachi chapter 1. Uh, and actually, I think I have, I think I have this. Um, I do. Let's take a look at this. This is Malachi chapter 1, verses 10 through 14. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. <clears throat> but you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So obviously this is, um, well, Malachi is the last prophet. And he's talking about the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices that would exist on the altar. And people would come and they would offer the animal sacrifices. But uh, by the time of Malachi, they were offering uh, impure animals or maybe not the first fruit animals or not the best from the flocks. Uh, and the Lord is angry at this because, he, because people aren't offering the best that they have on the altar. And so they're sacrificing um, the wrong kind of meat. Uh, they're sacrificing an impure meat. Well, what the early church said is that if you come, if, if the Lord's Supper, if the Eucharist is like a sacrifice, uh, which the early church really believed it was, if, if you came together and, and, and had the sacrifice, Jesus on the cross uh, and the sacrifice of the people, then it should be a pure sacrifice. And so if if you come together in the Lord's Supper and there's someone among you that has quarrel with each other, in other words, that the body of Christ is not unified, then they should not, they should not partake of the Lord's Supper until they're unified. And Paul says the same thing too, right? Uh, he says, before you give your gift at the altar, go and reconcile with your brother and then come bring your gift. So there's, there's something about the Eucharist that is not just a, uh, the coming together to, to have body and blood of Christ, but it's also, it appears to be like a point of unity of the church, that this group of people would come together and they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, but they have to be unified to do it, that there, has, there can't be quarrels and dissension and anger and that sort of thing uh, in the group. Now, this is really easy to do if your group, uh, for example, Jesus had 12, right? So it's pretty easy to keep 12 people on the same page. But it is really difficult as those numbers get larger, right? Uh, you get to 35 to 50 people and you want them all to be a, a part of the same group. That's a little bit harder. But if you'll remember, in the early church, uh, this wasn't a basilica. Uh, this wasn't a huge synagogue, the early church met in house churches. They either met outside or they met 
um, oftentimes uh, from from the research, it appears that in the early church, uh, the house churches were basically a very wealthy person in the community that might have had a room in their house that was large enough to handle maybe 35 to 50 people or something like that. And so these early churches would not meet at their own building. They would meet uh, in a wealthy person's home and they would all come together and they would have a room. So you might have the potluck in that room. You might, you know, uh, do... Uh, well, by the second or third century, there's actually some uh, structure that's put around this. Uh, here in the Didache, they come together for confession and breaking of bread is the middle of the agape meal. But once the agape meal goes away, then this day of the Lord probably moves to a morning thing before work uh, where they might come together. They might have a reading uh, there's some uh, in the early church apostolic fathers that talks about uh, they would have a reading. Uh, they might sing a few songs. Um, they might have a teaching. They would have prayer uh, and then they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that's kind of by about 200, definitely by the time of Constantine, 325 AD. Um, this is kind of the pattern. It was on Sunday morning and it was it was following a structure that, that follows that pretty much, you know, like the structure that we follow today. But prior to that, prior in the 100 AD to 200 AD time period, um, if they did come together on a Sunday, it was basically just to celebrate the Mass, or well, celebrate the Lord's Supper, which in the Roman Catholic Church, um, this is the main part of why church happens on Sunday. Uh, it's to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Everything else is subsidiary to coming together for the Eucharist. Now, in the Reformation, uh, Luther and the Reformers changed all that to also elevate the Word of God uh, to be as, as high of a platform or high of importance as the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so you end up with, um, with uh, in, you know, definitely by the time of the Reformation, you have two parts to Sunday morning worship. You have, uh, you have the service of the Word, which is, uh, which is the God's word and all the things around God's word. And then you have the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So you have, you have those two celebrations coming together, the order of the word and the order of, of the Lord's Supper, the order of the Eucharist. Those are the two parts of worship that come out of the Reformation. But early here in, uh, in uh, the Didache, when they came together, it was mostly just to uh, confess your transgressions uh, and to break bread uh, for the Eucharist. So my guess is, is that uh, in, the, in this agape meal, which would happen on Sunday after work, they would come together for this meal, and then in the meal, they would pause, they would confess their sins, then they would um, celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, maybe finish up the meal, and then there was a prayer after that meal, and then they would go home. And that seems to be what they did on the Lord's, on the Lord's Day, which I, as I've said before, I, I really... Uh, I really like that concept. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, it, and just as an interesting aside, the early church very much then felt that Malachi, this prophet, where he was talking about the Lord's table and the sacrifice and all that sort of thing, and you should have a pure sacrifice, that, that Malachi was really uh, pre, um, prefiguring or talking about a future Eucharist that would happen in the church. The early church, uh, and I think even still today, um, had a huge 
correlation uh, of between this this chapter of Malachi, Malachi 1 and the Lord's Supper, that they're directly linked uh, and that the things that Malachi is talking about in chapter 1 are definitely applicable to the Lord's Supper. Um, so that so they would get together on the Lord's Day and they would um, typically go to a wealthy person's home. Uh, eventually, uh, they might, a group of Christians might buy a home, pool their resources together, buy a home, well, and, and you can imagine that uh, it's pretty difficult. You have to have a really mature Christian. <laughs> Think about this. Think about your own home. Uh, to have a whole group of people, 35 to 50 people, come over to your home once a week on Sunday afternoon, and they are going to uh, bring food, uh, and they're going to celebrate all this stuff, and then they're going to go home. Well, what happens after that? Well, if you've got slaves... Um, or servants, they have to, you know, basically clean up afterwards and put everything back in order so that by Monday, uh, the house is back in order. Well, over time, that could be, that people could feel, if you're wealthy, that you're being abused on that. Uh, and so pretty much after the house churches, the next thing they would do is actually buy a home in the community and convert it to a house church. Uh, and we actually have some diagrams and descriptions of this where they have typically a great room, a baptismal room, um, a couple other rooms for teaching. And it was maybe, I'm guessing, I, yeah, I, I've seen pictures of it, so I'm just guessing here, but maybe it was a two or 3,000 square foot home that had two or three rooms and a large room or something. Maybe it's 4,000 square feet home. You know, two, two or three large or smaller rooms for teaching, a room for for baptism where there's a where there's a place for baptism and then a larger room for assembly uh, and those structures they've they've dug those up and they found you know they've archaeologically dug and, and created descriptions of them uh, and so you can see those uh, but but once uh, by 325 AD when Christianity becomes the official religion of Rome then uh, they actually start creating architectural spaces that uh, work well for the, all the different things that they're doing as a church, uh, which includes worship, it includes um, you know coming together in prayer, all these sort of things come together you know in a building that eventually becomes a church building, uh, and of course then they make them in the shape of a cross, uh, so that um, you know it, it shows the that it's a Christian building because it's in the shape of a cross, and at the the main hall what they call the nave is where all the people sit. And then you have the uh, transepts, which are the ends of the arm. Uh, and those you could turn around and, you know, face the altar for a worship service. But typically those are used for prayer. So you might come into a, a building like that, shaped like a, a cathedral or an early church. And you might go into one of the transepts and you might, uh, it might be a place of quiet, quiet contemplation and prayer. Uh, but then... But then the whole space would be used for for worship, uh, you know, on a Sunday morning or a feast or a high festival day where they have lots and lots of crowds of people. They would open up the transepts, open up the nave, and everything would be open and people would be in there. Uh, and that's that is kind of where it evolved to. Uh, but in the early days, it wasn't that. It was um, it was basically a group, a small group of people of Christians coming together to share life together on a daily basis. And then on the Lord's Day, they would come together for a big meal and, and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I think it's kind of cool. I, I really believe that that is, uh, that is a neat way to, uh, to be church. 
Um, not that what we do isn't also neat, because I think what we do is great too. Um, I just I just think about uh, I think about a community that lives so close together that they could almost do life together, right? That that everybody is close enough that you could walk to their house, and you could. I mean, back then in those in that community, you could walk to people's houses, you could walk to the house church. Um, you might have um, maybe five to ten thousand people living in a in an area of, of a of a square mile. I mean, that certainly would not be at all out of the question because houses were much smaller back then. Um, so you you might have um, you, it just might be very very easy to have a group of people to be able to come and celebrate together on a daily basis. You know, and live life together, and they all knew each other anyway. I mean, we're talking about. The amount of people in some of these places, uh, it, they would have known, <clears throat> definitely their small communities, they would have known each other, uh, which is kind of cool. All right, so um, I think uh, I think we'll leave it at that. Uh, I think we'll leave chapter 14, uh, we'll go to 15, and uh, we'll do that uh, in the next episode. Um, so as we, as we close today, uh, let's close in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for your church and the fact that we can gather together and celebrate you in various ways throughout time. Be with us today for the rest of the day and bring us back again. In Jesus' name, amen.